Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Stuart, Sean, welcome to the roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect, guys. Let's dive right into the show. On the first half, I want to reflect on what's happened in the United States this week, a kind of tumultuous moment in American politics. It connects, I think, back to, uh, I don't know, a growing kind of anxiety about uh, the state of our democracy, the extent to which people feel their views and opinions are represented in our institutions. That's certainly something that's happening here in Canada, very live debate in our parliament. But Boy, did it explode in the United States this week with the removal of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. Sean Spear, you are in the States at a conference of uh, conservative thinkers who are thinking big thoughts on American culture, politics, and identity. What are you hearing down there? Yeah, um, I'm here at a conference hosted by the Carter Institute, good friend of the the Hub. And I'm struck, uh, Rudyard and Stewart, how many of the participants here express a kind of almost hopelessness about the state of American culture and politics, the tendency towards polarization, the inability to seemingly get anything done. Of course, that we met um, against the backdrop in which we saw the Republican speaker taken down by members of his own caucus, uh, no doubt accentuated those feelings. But I, I, I'm really more, I really, really struck rather by the, yeah, the sense in which people are increasingly talking about the fragility of American democracy, questioning the ability of America to solve the, the challenges that we face, everything from, you know, the fiscal crisis to climate change and everything virtually in between. Um, as a Canadian who, of course, is uh, whose economic life and social life uh, is in so many ways interconnected with the United States, I, I leave here today feeling you know, a sense of alarm, actually, by what I'm hearing from uh, the Americans participating in the conference. Really, Sean, okay. let's go a little bit. Let's go a little bit deeper with you on that. When you say alarm, you have a sense of alarm. Look, I, I mean, there's many ways to look at what happened this week in Congress. One narrative, which I'm not, you know, I'm not unsusceptible to, is that this was a, a victory for greater accountability in their legislature. I mean, actually having legislation that legislators can read and vote on um, and have the time to vote on and single issue bills as opposed to endless continuing resolutions and on and on and on. There's there's lots. One, I would think, Sean, that you could say that half of the United States this week that kind of shows the reassertion of American democracy. Yes, maybe these various people, Matt Gates and others are dressing these issues up in larger personal or political causes, but I don't know what, what, why the, why the sense of alarm? That's a strong word. Well, I think, I think the view, what I'm hearing here is even, even those who may agree with some of the ends um, that you've just outlined, you know, just have a sense that a lot of people in public life these days um, 
are really motivated by breaking things, not building things. And, um, and, and so I think one of the questions is, is there room, is there scope for someone to emerge out of, um, American cultural and political pluralization who can build bridges, who can actually kind of build things. And I, I, I think the answer amongst the people I'm speaking to this week is, is no, it's not self-evident that, that there is the kind of conditions for something like that to happen. Stuart though, do you have to, break things before you can rebuild them i mean it's alliteration but there's a lot that's broken right now in american democracy there's a lot you could say it's broken in our democracy there's a lot of it that's demonstrably unrepresentative you know we in canada have a uh from time to time including now because of this supply kind of motion with the ndp we have in a sense um uh, you know, an elected dictator who can has immense power as prime minister in ways that American presidents would probably blush. So I get what Sean's saying. You know, the builder, where's the builder? Does everyone want to tear things down? But when demonstrably systems are sclerotic, corrupt, infested, at least in the United States, with corporate money and K Street lobbyists, maybe it's time to take it down to the studs and try to put something new together that's more reflective of the will of the people. Yeah, this is something I noticed as far back as the the Wild Rose Party floor cross that happened in Alberta, where uh, Danielle Smith took a lot of her party over to the governing PCs, and they paid the price for it electorally. People hated it. And it was just this kind of too clever by half deal making that I think people were tired of. And I think you see this sort of playing out on a lot of levels. And I think that's maybe in the US what congressionally people are tired of is, you know, we're here, we'll make the deals, we're going to do it behind closed doors, and you guys are going to like it. And in the Senate, that's always how they've done it. That was kind of the whole idea of the Senate. Um, and you just have this sort of stasis, and the people feel left out. I think maybe an underrated part of um, the decline of the Liberal Party's polling numbers in Canada, maybe what you mentioned is this deal with the NDP, which is when Canadians give you a minority government collectively, um, the statement to that party that's governing is, we didn't trust you with a majority. We didn't think that you were up to that. And the Liberals have basically uh, scrabbled together a majority with the NDP. This government functions in Parliament like a majority. It's very easy for them in a way it wouldn't be uh, with a minor minority government. So I, I think maybe that kind of deal making, it just doesn't fly anymore with people. I think that's part of what we see in this kind of populist moment is people are just tired of that. So Sean, what do you think of this argument that really all this stuff around politics is just in Canada, the United States, as we go into the Thanksgiving weekend here in Canada, just kind of flotsam and jetsam, you know, to invoke my inner Karl Marx, he had this idea of base and superstructure. There was really economic relationships that determined culture and politics. That's very deterministic, but isn't in some ways maybe what you're experiencing in the United States at this conference, that there's a lot of dysfunctionality in our economy right now. There's a lot of inequality. There's uh, an affordability crisis. There are all, there's concentrations of, of power in, you know, corporate and other CEOs in our society. This really, at the end of the day, comes down to economics. You're looking at the tea leaves at the bottom of the cup, and I'm, I'm sure they're fascinating and interesting, and hopefully the tea was good to drink down there. But it's not really what the issue is. The issue beneath all the kind of malaise and angst in Canada and the United States right now is just the crappy 
feeling about this economy and the experience now of two years of inflation with, in my sense, very little conviction that this is going to go away anytime soon. Yes, inflation may come down, but we we may not be back to the you know the targets of these central banks for possibly years to come. Um, and I don't know that you feel kind of crappy. Yeah, our minds work the same. Um, outside of the conference on Wednesday, me and the other participants were asked uh, what what we feared the most. And I should I should contextually for listeners, a lot of the participants here are involved in matters of culture and politics because they're motivated by faith. And so a lot of them talked about secularization, the decline of the family, um, the growing inability for conversation across difference, all of these sorts of things. And I I stood up and said, at the risk of sounding a bit prosaic <laughs> and, and, and deterministic, I most, most fear a stagnant economy, flatline living standards, growing economic pessimism, because it seems to me that that those trends inter- interacting with some of these broader cultural and spiritual ones that some of the other participants are more focused on is just a toxic brew for uh, liberal de- democratic societies that um, so much of the promise of liberal democracy is progress. So I think your answer is right. I would even go so further to say um, it's not merely some of the economic trends that we've witnessed in the past couple of years. Of course, it reflects secular trends, uh, middle class stagnation, um, massive dislocation in the goods producing parts of the economy uh, in favor of the, the knowledge economy, which, of course, has benefited um, people in, in certain places more than others. I, I think all of those factors are the foundation for um um, a lot of the cultural and political turmoil we see, I'll, I'll turn it back to you in a second, but let me just say, George Will, a, a big fan of mine, often says the difference between 2% growth and 3% growth isn't 1%, it's 50%. And I, I think there's something to that. An, an economy growing at, at that rate solves a lot of the kind of cultural and political challenge societies. So Stuart, to map this back to Canada, I mean, is Sean onto something here? I mean, if we look at the roots of our kind of current malaise. I mean, we've seen these remarkable numbers out of Statistics Canada declining per capita in the country divided on a per person basis. It's fallen now. I think it's like we're into the seventh or so quarter of declining per capita GDP. We're back to 2017 levels. Um, We might not return to 2019 levels until the end of this decade. I mean, this is the stuff I think that we need to focus on. I think it's great to have you know the entertainment of Matt Gates or whatever you know shouting we have across our own legislature uh, going on on whatever issue of the day from grocery bills to well, the latest you know stopping people from having Airbnbs in their houses. I mean the list of you know boutique uh, small beer solutions to the big problems placing the facing the country. They're more of them than I have time for on our show today. But I think it doesn't, Stuart, all just get back to we got to get some growth back into the Canadian economy. We have to start moving up our per capita income. We have to create a genuine wealth effect, not a phony wealth effect through real estate and asset prices, but something that's real for people, real in their lives in terms of feeling like, they, their families uh, are moving forward. The future's better than the past. Yeah, there was some initial analysis done on primary supporters of Donald Trump. Um, 
you know, in 2016. And it was found that they tended to have above average incomes. And that was kind of used as a gotcha by the media that, look, these aren't people worried about the economy. These are rich people. Um, but some analysis by Tim Carney, a U.S. journalist, showed that they were people of above average incomes, but they were in economically declining places. And I think that tells you two things. One, that we feel the effects of our community, like it weighs on us no matter how we're personally doing. And secondly, that aspirations and hopes are the most important thing to us and to our politics. People who feel like the future is looking bad, um, they they vote that way. They vote in a way that's reactionary or that's angry. And I think that is a lesson we should really be looking at, which is, you know, something I've been trying to reconcile lately is my life is objectively really good. I've got, uh, you know, good job and a good family. And I was just at a Buffalo Bills game with my friends who I've been friends with for 25 years. And that's great. That's all the things that you need to tick the box on to be happy. Um, but that overwhelming feeling of malaise still hits me. And I think it is that, that once you start to worry about the future in that way, it's bad. And I think that Pierre Polyev has obviously understood that. I think the liberals are starting to get it. Uh, I think it's starting to drive home. Um, things are starting to move in that party in a way they haven't in a while. And I, I think this could be a really bad effect on our politics, or if the parties respond in a better way, it, it could make things a little better. Let's uh, take a quick break. Back on the other side, uh, someone's probably having turkey with extra gravy uh, this weekend. Uh Building up a lot of protein stores for what might come next. A long run. No, not a not a marathon. Possibly Mark Carney, I think, emerging as a alternative, an exit path from the Liberal Party of Justin Trudeau. So let's kick around the idea of Mark Carney as Liberal leader, as Prime Minister of Canada, right after this break. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. Okay, guys, um, this has not been, I think, a good week yet again for the Liberals. There's been, uh, you know, the usual kind of uh, sense of a slow motion car crash here, more poll numbers coming out, at least seat projections, suggesting that Conservatives are now firmly in majority territory. I think some of the big kind of policy planks around housing and affordability remain stalled. And it all kind of leads, it begs the question, Sean, about a leadership transition, uh, that if the liberals want to mount up and ride to the sound of the guns for another day, they may need somebody else at the head of their posse. A natural, to me, transition would be over the Christmas break. 
one person who's getting increasing attention after his debut at a conference of so-called progressives a couple weekends ago in Montreal is our former governor of the Bank of Canada, former governor of the Bank of England, Bay Street Honcho, now with Brookfield, Mark Carney. Sean, how do you assess Mark Carney's, let's talk first about his prospects to become the next liberal leader and potentially resuscitate the political fortunes of this currently embattled party. Yeah, let me make three quick points. One, um, you know, I think my hypothesis would be that the prime minister gives himself until the end of the calendar year to see if he can't um, restore uh, the liberal party and, and close the gap in the polls. It doesn't need to, the party doesn't need to be ahead of the conservatives, but the gap can't be double digits. Um, and I think if he can't do that by the end of the year, then I think the internal external pressure for him to think about stepping down will will grow markedly. And in, in which case this will no longer be a kind of hypothetical conversation, but quite a, quite a, a serious one. Carney himself, you know, he strikes me as a high risk, high reward alternative to the prime minister. I, and the, the analogy I would draw in a way is um, Andrew Shearer's leadership following uh, Stephen Harper in 2015. Shearer struck me as a relatively low risk, low reward alternative to Harper, which is to say he was probably going to be able to hold together the conservative coalition, which at the time in the aftermath of Harper's leadership was an outstanding question, of course, because he had only been the the only uh, the ever been the, the, the leader of the conservative party. But that Shear is likely the likelihood that Shear would reach a, a broader set of voters that the party needs to win was was pretty low. And I juxtapose that with Maxime Bernier, who could have done harm to the conservative coalition and could have flamed out in a general election, but also had some potential um, upside as well. Um, and I think that's a decision that the liberals will have to make. Are they in a mode where they're trying to um, maintain a kind of basic floor in their level of support in, in parliament and across the country? Or are they actually looking to win again? In which case, Carney strikes me as uh, someone who could deliver a win or but also could deliver a pretty devastating defeat for the for the liberals. The third thing I'll say, and then I'll hand it back to you guys, is, and I'd be interested in particular, Rudyard, in your reaction to this, what do you think about the politics of a former central banker kind of breaking the Chinese wall between monetary policy and politics? It's a, I have to go back in my history. I, I don't think there's a lot of examples um, in the Anglo-American world. And, you know, big part of that, of course, is uh, about the the idea that monetary policy is independent from politics. Does Mark Carney's entrance into politics harm that independence? Um, and what would be the consequences of something like that? Mm -hmm. Well, just real quick, I think there are some precedents. The biggest one is Mario Draghi, who was head of the European Central Bank and went on to become the president of Italy. Uh, next, Christine Lagarde, a very prominent French politician, someone rumored possibly to be a future president of France, is now the head of the ECB. Janet Yellen, president of the U.S. Federal Reserve, goes right into the Biden cabinet in the most senior role running the Treasury. You effectively have two central bankers right now running the U.S. economy, Jay Powell at the Fed and Janet Yellen at Treasury. So what's to me is interesting, and you know, again, this is really you know, atmospherics, but there are, there's something kind of magical around central bankers. I mean, they are the policy kind of colossus in our world. They've defined the last decade, the price of capital, the price of everything. Um, that comes with, you know, baggage, Davos type baggage, uh, perceptions of, 
you know, membership in a, not just an elite, but the elite of the elite. But let me hear from Stuart on this because Stuart, you know, history is not kind to the successors of political parties and political movements when they're inheriting, you know, furniture that's been well used by the previous incumbent in this case for eight plus years. I think of the transition in particular from Cretchen to Martin, or I think of the UK, Tony Blair to Gordon Brown. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about how hard it is to resurrect a party, resurrect its brand, convince voters that there genuinely is something new. Yeah, it is hard even when the person following is, you know, temperamentally and ideologically different from the person they're succeeding to. And I I think that's because voters don't think in terms of who the person is. They think this party has been governing for a long time. And you actually see this in the U.S. too about uh, Democrats and Republicans. If a vice president or another party member comes in, they get the same basic effect on of public opinion on them. I, I think for the liberals, I have always been, and I will admit that I'm probably have some inherited class warrior instincts from my dad that make me pretty skeptical of bankers and suits. Um, but I do feel like maybe they're overestimating the Carney effect. And it really does remind me of Jim Prentice coming to Alberta. Very competent guy, came in, ran a competent premier's office for all we've heard, um, but just had no political instincts. And it hurt him immediately. And it hurt him with that floor cross that I mentioned earlier. I do wonder if it would be something like that. And the liberals also have, you know, they have people like Melanie Jolie who are associated with Justin Trudeau, but are younger women, women who come in, maybe have a fresher take on things who might look like more of a break from the Trudeau years, even though they have been in the Trudeau years. So I, I'm highly skeptical of the Carney thing. And I also think that liberals are about at the limit for when they can have an orderly transition uh, leading up to the next election. After that, it becomes a disorderly transition based on some scandal that's provoked Justin Trudeau to step down, which that's that's basically a death knell for them. Yeah, great insights there. Um, all of a piece in the Hub uh, early next week, just on the craziness that we're seeing in bond markets around the world with yields soaring. So the cost of debt exploding, but not because central banks are hiking interest rates, but because uh, investors want more from their bonds because they perceive you know, that there are risks now attached to these bonds, record government deficits. They feel that you know, inflation certainly isn't going back to zero again. Um, this, you know, Canada is one of the most highly leveraged economies in the world. Um, as I'll show in the piece, you know, if you add up our our debt, personal, government, non-financial, corporate, and you look at it as a portion of GDP, we're behind Japan and head ahead of Greece. So there's a lot of pain, unfortunately, that could be coming for Canada uh, in a scenario, I think the likely one, where it's not simply higher for longer interest rates at the short end set by central banks, it's higher for longer uh, borrowing costs throughout the bond market. 10-year, 20-year, 30-year debt set by Mr. Bond Market himself. And in that scenario, I think Canadians are going to put a big premium on economic competency, on someone who really understands the mechanics of the system and can credibly put forward solutions and ideas to, to this case, kind of perform, you know, heart surgery on a, a Canadian economy that might be at that point in cardiac arrest. Uh, 
So Carney certainly has that. And if you look at the trajectory of careers of people like Mario Draghi and others, that's precisely why they get brought in. Because there's a moment where people want the technocrat. They actually want that. It sounds weird. I agree with you. The banker in the suit is not an attractive, in this case, an ex-Goldman Sachs executive is not an attractive initial kind of political look to have. But if you literally are about to lose your house or you have lost your job or the government is having to engage in deep cuts to uh, right-size a budget in the face of a bond market that's gone on strike on Canadian debt, you want an expert. And there are probably, arguably in the world, few experts more qualified to deal with these types of problems than Mark Carney. So all of that, Stuart, is hugely unsexy. It's very little razzmatazz in it. So I see Mark Carney really as a, as a play on financial and economic instability. And I think he only really comes to the fore and he only really has potential, unfortunately, if the country and the economy is in a lot of trouble, 6, 12 to 18 months from now. Yeah, I think it'll be it'll be two competing mess messages. In the past, we've had people kind of feeling around the edges on different policies. And the last time it happened was 2015 with the Trudeau liberals. Pierre Polyev's message is that guys like Carney caused this mess. And we're going to put some of that power back in people's hands. Carney's message is, we need someone who's an expert to solve this problem. And I I think probably those messages, I don't think it's a, a given that Pierre Polyev wins that argument. And I, I it really does depend where we end up. Do we get into a recession? And uh, are we dealing with that while the election's going on? Are we coming out of a recession? Um, it does remind me of 2008 when Obama was taking on McCain and um, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. And John McCain said, I'm going to stop my campaign and deal with this. And Obama said, no, I'm going to do briefings and I'm going to keep campaigning because that's what a president does. And it really was a very defining moment in the campaign, how they handled that crisis while the election was going on. So I think it, it might actually be a fun election if that actually happens. So what's Stuart, just to wrap this segment of the podcast up, what do you think the conservative reaction to Mark Carney would be? Because on one moment, you could see a visceral reaction, the one you know, you've just flagged, which is this guy is Bobby Banker in a suit and he's responsible for, you know, all the nefarious uh, comings and goings to the World Economic Forum and you really don't want him running your country. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 that may appeal, I think, to the maybe element of the base of the Conservative Party, but I think the threat of Mark Carney is the reawakening of the blue liberals. Uh, remember, he's also got quite strong environmental credentials. So I think there's a portion of the progressive wing of the Liberal Party that could become reconciled to Mark Carney on the basis of his, at times, I think, environmental kind of extremism. And then I think there are conservatives, urban conservatives, who would say, okay, finally, the blue liberals are back. And a lot of these writings, maybe that conservatives were hoping to pick up, swing back into the liberal column on the basis of a more business-friendly, business-oriented uh, approach. I mean, I think it's no surprise that Carney went to this progressive conference a few weekends ago in Montreal. I mean, he's running to the left, but his whole brand would be to pull the Liberal Party back into the center. So what's the conservative rebuttal to all that? Yeah, I, I actually think the conservative reaction is a little bit like the liberal reaction to Pierre Polyev, which is that they truly, the liberal partisans truly believe Pierre Polyev is the worst. 
but they kind of saw people's reaction to him. They saw the rallies, they saw the interest, and they knew that it was a genuine threat, even though they didn't quite understand that. I think they're starting to understand it now, but I think they were genuinely befuddled for a while. I think the initial reaction for conservatives would be to pop champagne, that basically the personification of everything they've been campaigning against is now the leader of the Liberal Party. But I think they should probably think the same way the liberals are thinking about Polyev, which is that there is an appeal here that could be dangerous, even if we don't quite understand it. And I, I think probably that initial happiness will ebb away. I, I think probably you'd see a, a, the poll numbers that decline arrest and maybe bump with Carney. And I, I think it might become a real fight after that. I agree too. Well, guys, thanks for a terrific uh, discussion this week. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your families. And, uh, yeah, we'll do the roundtable all again next Friday. So please join us and please join us next week for a great set of articles, debates, commentaries in the hub. We'll be publishing all week long for your reading and listening pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's editor-in-chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>